started today with our guest today, I want to take a moment to say a few words about the show's host for the last 10 years, Evelyn Pringle, who passed away a week ago. Though she had recently been diagnosed with cancer, Evelyn didn't miss a beat and researched all manner of alternative treatments from which she seemed to be benefiting. Ironically, it was not the cancer that killed her, but an aneurysm that she chose not to treat surgically. Evelyn had been a fierce advocate for the protection of children fighting to expose everything from injuries and deaths caused by vaccines to the horrors of the global child sex trafficking industry and its direct role in allowing a criminal cartel to hijack governments all over the world, including our own, with sexual blackmail operations like those run by Jeffrey Epstein. Many of Evelyn's listeners don't know that she produced a massive body of journalistic work dating back 15 or 20 years exposing government corruption, such as the role of National Security Advisor John Bolton and the role he played in the fabrication of evidence used to justify the post-9-11 invasion of Iraq. Evelyn's dedication to the truth was longstanding, and she sought to bring it to the rest of us until she no longer could. She was truly a fighter to the end. In honor of Evelyn, and given the absence of a formal succession plan for the podcast, I've decided to pick it up to pick up the mantle and do my part to sustain her legacy, which brings me to our guest today, Stanley Cohen. Raised by Orthodox Jewish parents, Stanley grew up to become an unabashed critic of Zionism and advocate for those who have found themselves crushed under its totalitarian boot. From the very beginning of his career, Stanley has been a thorn in the side of the war-for-profit machine, championing the causes of foreign governments that dare to resist Western aggression and occupation, including Palestine, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Vietnam. However, Stanley was finally caught in the gears of the war machine in 2014 when he was targeted with tax evasion charges that were clearly designed to silence him. However, it rather backfired, and Stanley has come back swinging. Welcome, Stanley. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. But let me correct one thing, which makes it even more ludicrous. Uh, I was not charged with tax evasion offenses, but a rarely used offense that was not used for almost 40 years prior to my prosecution, which was impeding the IRS, which essentially says, you did something, we just can't figure out what you did. So, yeah. Wow, wow. You know, American justice, right? (laughs) How subtle, sophisticated, and skilled was I, never having done anything more than one tax course in my law school 40 years ago? They couldn't figure out what I did. But, look, that being said, done, finished, it's moved on, I'm back to practicing law full-time. I've been for a number of years, and everything's fine. Well, could you... um, just a few minutes. Tell us about your experience with that um, prosecution, and then what's ha- your your time in prison. And then what did you what were you thinking when you came out, and how you were going to you know tackle all of this? 
um, once that was behind you? Sure. Well, look, this investigation, prosecution, persecution of me began, we got wind of it as long ago as shortly after 9-11, when okay. uh, government agents approached a tribal police department in upstate New York in one of the territories that I had represented and asked a lawyer who was related to my partner of many years to go and make inquiry about me. Uh, we fairly soon discovered that the government was involved in investigating me with a view toward the prosecution for material support for terrorism. That went nowhere. After eight to ten years, it shifted over to some ridiculous allegation regarding conspiracy to smuggle marijuana across the Canadian border. Yeah, and I land on Mars as well. That went about <laughs> two years. That went nowhere. And when all else failed, they came back with this impeding the IRS. Um, I made a decision, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing nothing but criminal defense work since 1983, state, federal, and international human rights work. And on many occasions, uh, clients take pleas that are not guilty. Clients take pleas for a variety of reasons to end prosecutions, to end financial costs, to, quote, right. negotiate the best deal they can get, and to move on with their lives. Uh, when the government, the Northern District in particular in New York, started to harass my family, started threatening to subpoena family members to put them on witness stands, started creating problems in my practice. This having gone on for you know, 15 years, I decided to dispose of the case. I did. Um, as a result of it, interestingly enough, the judge who ended up with the case was a judge who I had fought for 20 years, hated me, who I had embarrassed not long before in an appellate argument. He reached down and took my case. That being said, we made a family decision to end this. So we did. Uh, I was in a camp, a uh, federal prison camp, for approximately, I don't know, nine, nine and a half months. Um, and then got out, was in a halfway house for four or five weeks, which was Looney Tunes, a private halfway house run by one of the most corrupt private prison industries uh, or entities in the United States. And then there was another year before I was able or so to get my license back. It's been back a while, and uh, I have been practicing the law that I have done for 35 years again, full-time, both state, federal, and international, and all as well. Well, I'm glad, you know, I, I fully appreciate uh, what you, you know, say about having to end these processes that are really just meant to deplete and bankrupt um, you know, their targets. And so, you know, I, it, it is a far too common practice that um, seems to be a go-to strategy these days, especially with uh, journalists and whistleblowers now. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, given your decades of experience with the system and, um, you know, arrests for civil disobedience and these kinds of things, you know, I, I, we can see with our eyes, if we only look, how much it's changed. And I wonder, you know, in contrast, what your experience was like 30 years ago versus, you know, more recently with uh, the, the system that you were up against with these um, bogus charges. Well, look, you know, prosecution of federal cases is dramatically different than prosecution of state cases. Um, not that I'm going to support, justify, explain away, or condone state 
prosecutions for criminal offenses, whether it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, Oklahoma, or wherever, because they're all criminal prosecutions. In a country that prosecutes people, 90% people of color, 90% poor people, 90% political dissidents, uh, whether it's state or federal, prosecutions are all criminal. They don't have to be for whistleblowers. They don't have to be for folks that are charged with, with um, conspiracy uh, to attack the government or to challenge the government. The everyday mom-and-pop crime is, is, is a political offense. It's political because of your color, because of your economic situation, because of, of, of your, your politics. Uh, it's political because of the nature of those who prosecute you. It's political because of the nature and the background of the judges that sentence you. So, but, but there is a dramatic difference that has evolved over the decades that I've been involved with criminal defense work in federal courts. Um, and again, I'm not applauding, condoning, rubber stamping my experiences with the federal court system of 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 15 years ago with today. But in those days, what we tended to see, particularly in high-profile or complex litigation, uh, was controlled by local districts, which meant you were dealing with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York or Northern California or in Chicago. So you were dealing with a priority system, an investigative system, a policy towards prosecution, towards prioritization of offenses, defenses towards trials on a really local basis which allowed you to the degree possible to deal with the reality of the local communities and the priority of the local communities. What has uh, evolved slowly but surely, long ago first with terrorism cases, which since 1995 have alleged terrorism cases, have essentially been taken over by Justice Maine. So they have stripped, although people are still indicted, prosecuted, tried, convicted, and sentenced in local district courts by local U.S. attorney's offices in every single case. Decisions, fundamental decisions, core decisions about prosecutorial options, about dispositions, about evidentiary matters, ended up years ago going to Justice Maine, which were career prosecutors who were you know, directly impacted 24-7 by political priorities of the government, of the State Department, of the executive branch, um, and of the political aspects of the government. What's happened over the years is um, that coordination, that control, that oversight by Justice Maine on so-called terrorism cases has essentially now shifted to um, just about every high-profile case. And it began to evolve slowly but surely, and under the last three years, Justice Maine is running every district in the United States. And so while people, it's funny, I wrote about this yesterday, while people talk about and praise the independence of the legendary Southern District of New York, their office, it's nonsense. Any high-profile case, any explosive case, any terrorism case, any case involving the president, his family, his friends, people involved in that world circle, ends up going to Justice Maine where there are units and those units are controlled by the Attorney General, and the Attorney General is controlled by the President of the United States. So while forever the Department of Justice is obviously an extension of the President and of the Executive Office, there has been for decades, forever by design, this, this wall of separation that while the Executive, while it's, whether it's Clinton, whether it's Trump, whether it's Obama, have periodically said, I think this needs to be a priority for investigation and prosecution, and we talk about wide categories, 
we've grown used to that forever. That's part and parcel of the executive authority. We understand it. It's now evolved to this executive essentially, literally, picking out people to target, picking out people to go after, picking out not just groups of, of, of alleged offenses to look at, but individual persons getting directly involved in arrests, investigations, prosecutions, and sentencing. Unheard of. So this wall, which, which by design was supposed to exist to separate the executive, even though DOJ is part of the executive, is gone. Completely gone yeah. Well, you see that on the other, you know, on the inverse as well, where these cases are, you know, brought there deliberately, at, you know, as a political uh, move. Those, that's where all the really important cases against the, you know, high-profile uh, individuals go to die. You know, you see all of the really, you know, the, the Clinton Foundation investigation went there to die. I mean, like how many times over and over again have we seen that kind of thing happen um, at the same time? So, well, so now that you're back, when you, when you finished up your, um, your time, when you contemplated, you know, coming back onto the scene, uh, did you have anything different or specific in mind, or was it just, you know, picking up where you left off and um, carrying it oh, forward? No, nothing has changed. Um, I'm still dealing with a sense of the same clients, the same issues. Uh, this week I'm dealing with uh, two or three alleged terrorism matters that are in different phases of their prosecution or appeal. I'm about to enter uh, a case involving um, sovereignty rights involving an Indian nation in North America. Uh, there's a, 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 a homicide case that I may be getting involved with. So, no, I've essentially picked up where I've left off. Uh, the difference okay. is... Um, I'm, I'm focusing more right now on extremely complex litigation. Uh, again, some of it involves international, some of it involves domestic. Um, in the old days, I was doing more um, state cases involving political action, political activity in New York City or elsewhere. I'm not right now. That may change. I'm just buried with... with uh, some very complex national, international litigation that takes a, a large amount of time. Well, uh, speaking of, um, you know, you had mentioned how the court system has been, you know, essentially weaponized politically. You know, uh, I was listening to an interview you had done where you were talking about the BDS movement, and this was from 2017, and how you were seeing at that point that, that it was really beginning to pick up. And this, that was actually the point at which I first, you know, in, I am deeply embarrassed to say that I have been in the dark until just a few years ago. You know, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I had no idea what was going on. I sort of sensed it. I worked in Wall Street finance, and I had seen how the SEC had been weaponized by these billionaires to use against their competition to, you know, uh, open up investigations that were never pursued but would, um, you know, effectively handcuff the the management and board in terms of you know uh, their development for example but I did not understand how it extended so deeply into um, all aspects of our infrastructure and so now when you were you had mentioned that you the uh, sheer 
um, volume and size of the response by the Israeli regime to with these hundreds of millions of dollars being spent in the PR campaigns and um, desperate attempts to make uh, Israel friendlier to the average American, um, you know, as you mentioned, the BDS mo- movement since then has mushroomed, um, and we're seeing, you know, governments across the globe really mobilize against it. Now we've had the UN, um, you know, uh, which is a meaningless body, but it's a symbolic statement that they rejected the peace plan. The Arab states have now um, rejected it for the most part, and. Um, and at the same time, as we see them losing this uh, PR war, they are pushing both at the state level and national level for this anti-BDS legislation. And, you know, again, this is a global move. And, um, you know, we're starting to see the impacts of this. Uh, especially now with the executive order that's been signed regarding uh, schools and their um, willingness to shut down uh, opposition to Israeli crimes. So Abby Martin, I don't know if you're familiar with her, was invited to Mm -hmm. speak um, recently and asked to sign a a pledge to Israel before they would let her speak. And she refused, of course. And thankfully, her uh, she had some colleagues with her also refused to participate under the circumstances and the whole event fell apart as a result. So, you know, there are there are some small successes, but I'd be really interested to hear your take on where we are today in that um, regard. Well, look, you know, I I have been a firm critic and been involved as an activist, as an organizer, as a social worker, as a a legal aid lawyer, and now a human rights lawyer, a criminal defense attorney for half a century and have never spared the United States policies, the United States practices and procedures from provided any protection against my view uh, of its role uh, in terms of domestic oppression and support of international oppression and violence. The one thing the U.S. has for sure, the most redeeming feature besides our diversity, which Trump is desperately trying to keep a lid on, is the First Amendment. There is no other country in the world that has the depth and breadth of speech, privilege, and freedom opportunity that the United States does. And yes, there are constant pushback and efforts, um, both domestically by organizations, both politically, both by the government, to try to tamp down on that. Uh, they fail, eventually. The problem is they've made a decision that we understand we're not going to win. So in the matter of Abby, of, of, of Abby Martin, in the matter of you know another half dozen, eight or nine, state and federal legislative challenges that have come down, although there have been dozens of statutes that have been passed, every single one has lost in court. But for one, a district court decision down south, which is very bizarre, but it was stayed by the appellate court and it's going to be reversed. The reality of it is these executive orders, state or federal, these efforts to penalize, to punish um, universities, uh, um, that that have some some modicum of state activity or state action, because that's the requirement to control, to censor speech, they all fail sooner or later. They just will not surveil. So I'm in the long run not concerned so much about, not not at all, about the practical long-term impact 
upon legislative attempts to silence BDS because it actually blows up in people's faces. It tends to educate people, to enlighten people, to get pretty good decisions from district courts and circuit courts, so it backs up and blows up in people's faces. Where it becomes problematic is in those situations where you don't move very quickly to get orders to to vacate or to stay or to freeze imposition of, of sanctions or penalties or BDS restrictions, you end up in years worth of litigation. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. Um, you've got a huge slush fund in the United States of Zionist lawyers that are funded by American Zionists and also by Israeli Zionists, um, which is most of Israel, but I'm talking about you know large groups that have made a conscious decision, okay, we know we're going to lose in the United States, and they have lost ultimately on, as I said, every, every case it's come down the pike because you can't do it. But they've committed themselves to doing it just to intimidate universities, to intimidate faculty, to intimidate student activists, to intimidate state legislatures. They've made a conscious decision that it's worth, worth, worth their time and energy. A bigger problem, as you pointed out, is that in parts of the world, look at UK being the, the perfect example, the smearing that's been going, going on towards the Labour Party about anti-Semitism, which is nonsense. In other parts of Europe, the prosecution of people are doing nothing more than speaking out in support of Palestine, in support of Palestinian rights for hate crimes and, and for criminal activity, uh, in which people have gone to prison, in which people have been silenced, in which groups have been closed down. That's much more prolific and present internationally than it is in the United States. Um, but there is a flip side to this. If BDS was not working, if BDS was not serving as a powerful hedge against the Zionist narrative, no one would be concerned. It would simply be business as usual. The fact of the matter is the BDS movement is growing worldwide. Uh, it remains a, a solidarity movement uh, in the West, outside of the occupied territories, uh, as strong if not stronger than that that proved successful in South Africa years ago. Um, and Israel is frightened, as it should be, about the BDS movement. Uh, to the degree that the BDS movement maintains solidarity with Palestinians on the ground, to the degree that activists that are not Palestinian are involved in pushback and fighting and supporting, it's fabulous, it's productive, and it, it will prove entirely successful. To the degree that those people who support Palestinian self-determination, justice, equal rights, and independence try to weigh in, on the nature and extent of the struggle, how it should proceed, that is where the line is crossed. And I have increasingly become more vociferous in my opposition to that. I'll give you an example. There are well-intentioned uh, Western, in general, in the United States in particular, activists and groups that support Palestinian self-determination um, and, um, and, and frequently weigh in in trying to describe the nature and extent of that self-determination and resistance. That's not a call for non-Palestinians. That decision is alone left in the hands of Palestinians themselves. So my message to those people that want to help Palestinian self-determination, equality, and justice, BDS is the way to go. But in terms of weighing in in any debate and how Palestinians, whether in the occupied territories or outside, should proceed, it's crossing a line not helpful, it's counterproductive, um, and it creates problems. Regarding Israel, you know, the, the Israeli uh, political apparatus, 
Do you, um, you know, now that this, they've, they've showed their hand, they, we know what, you know, the plan was all along, um, but, and now it's backfiring, as you're pointing out, you know, all of this uh, intensification on their part to force the matter is only um, creating more resistance. Um, you know, Netanyahu is now under official indictment and facing uh, trial, and it's still not clear, at least I'm not sure, I personally am not clear about, you know, when the timing of that trial and um, the next election is supposed to be. But uh, where, you know, as, uh, as this global movement against uh, the Zionist state um, gains momentum. Uh, and we see Netanyahu personally, at least, I mean, certainly Benny Gantz is no better. And, you know, the, the whole Knesset is full of these rabid, um, you know, genocidal types. Do you, where do you see the dynamics within that uh, structure affecting what the uh, how things play out from here with um, the backlash that they're now experiencing. Well, look, the, the, the key for every political strategy um, in Israel has always been when in trouble, declare war, as if there's not war 24 <laughs> 7, seven days a week for 73 years. The key has always been to raise the red flag of national security, of crisis, of something particularly unique or dangerous at this moment of time, such that we can't afford the instability, the change of leadership, um, the, the prosecution of Netanyahu, uh, a judicial system getting involved uh, in mucking up, as they say, uh, security and national security concerns facing the Israeli people. It's very clear it's a pretext. It's very clear while, while the Israeli government has been quick to point out to kites that are being flown in that pose about as much dangerous as the snow in the mountains does to deer, uh, as a basis for increased bombings in Gaza, as a basis for all sorts of activity in the West Bank, it's, it's pretextual. It's designed to deflect. It's designed to convince those in Israel and out that there is something unique and pressing and dangerous about this particular point in time, which justifies outrages even more outrageous than normal. So this whole process that we've seen unfold the last week or two, in particular with resistance growing on the ground in Palestine against the so-called uh, deal of the century, which is nothing more than another Kushner um, housing court disaster in New York City, um, is, is being used, is being exploited, is being used as a pretext to protect Netanyahu, uh, to protect uh, annexation, complete annexation, although there's been, there's been basically de facto annexation in most of the West Bank, sections C and D forever, um, or zones C and D. Um, it's being used as a pretext. Uh, it's being used to deflect the focus on what the problem is. The problem is 75-plus years of, gen of genocide, direct occupation for over half a century now, land theft, annexation, mass incarceration in military prisons without trials, without lawyers, women, young boys, children, executions that have been going on uh, 
around the 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 the, the concentration camp known as Gaza for over a year now, with thirty to thirty-five thousand people shot, crippled, or killed, assassinated for nothing more than demonstrations every week. So this this is not by accident. Now, I don't want to paint a picture where people drop their head and say, "Oh my God!" It is clear that despite the atrocity, despite what's going on on the ground, despite efforts worldwide to suppress and tamp down on resistance, they're afraid. It's working. The resistance is. The tide has begun to shift. There's no doubt in my mind. Increasingly, communities, movements, persons, states, and countries are beginning to impose sanctions, both on travel, on individuals, on products. Uh, increasingly, governments throughout the world are standing up against the Zionist propaganda and the money and the bribery and the involvement within domestic politics and policies and fighting back and resisting and beginning to understand very clearly that there are few situations of good and bad in this world today, of, of, of right and wrong, for lack of a better word, but the occupation of Palestine must end. Um, the solution, the resolution, based upon justice, equality, uh, and self-determination, I believe is closer today than ever before, notwithstanding a quick look at what's going on on the ground. What's going on on the ground is related directly to the fact that the combination of self-determination and resistance on the ground in Palestine and the growing outrage and movement of BDS worldwide means we are closer to liberation and justice and freedom, not further from it. One of the things, you know, that from uh, my perspective as I um, am watching this from afar is that, you know, we see this system of... Um, totalitarianism that's used on Gaza emerging under uh, with different clothes <laughs> in across the globe and um, you know for example the uh, Zionist led coup in Brazil the Bolivia the ongoing uh, coup attempt in Venezuela the Ukraine um, you know, you see, for example, uh, also uh, patterns emerging with the behavior of the uh, military and police. For example, in Palestine, it had become a, an observable practice that the snipers were shooting children in the eye in, deliberately. And then this pattern appeared in France with the gilet jaunes being shot with non-lethal munitions, and dozens were blinded by direct shots. Then we start seeing the Israeli-armed uh, Indian military direct shots to the eyes of Kashmiris. And uh, Chile, same thing now. Hundreds have been blinded by deliberate shots to their eyes. And, and so in these different ways, these patterns are emerging where this attempt, this clear attempt to, you know, extend this uh, model across the globe is uh, clearly underway. And though I recognize it's not a new model, it's just got, you know, a different, um, you know, cartel behind it at this point, it seems. I don't, you know, uh, but 
you know, where, how do you see, you know, you've done work with all of these groups, you know, over the decades, you know, who have fought these attempts that are similar in nature, but again, you know, maybe just driven by different specific uh, interests and families. But how, um, as, how do you see that part of it as you described um, what's going on in Palestine and the effects of the uh, outward pressure against the Israeli occupation um, manifesting with escalated violence and rhetoric, uh, are, is that what you, would you apply that same um, perspective to the global environment where we're seeing this kind of, these practices emerge? Well, look, I, I put it in a little different context. I, look, are there exchanges of police forcing Mechanisms, trainings, and strategies, of course. Uh, policing, international policing is no different than international weaponry. International policing strategies and tactics and approaches is no different than selling F-35s from Vermont to drop bombs in, Israel, in, in, in Palestine and in Gaza. Um, but I look at it a little differently in terms of the, the worldwide picture. Uh, I recall, you know, for, for those of us that are old enough, there was clearly a generational sweep from the 50s to the 60s from the period of McCarthyism, from the period of quiet, from the period of smile, from the period of, of whites only on the, the walls where there were bathrooms or fountains throughout much of the country, not just in the South, but in other areas. There was a generational sweep that came in the 60s, where issues of, 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 of self-determination, where issues of equality, where issues of justice, where issues of, of, of confronting Jim Crow, of breaking the back of, 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 of redlining, issues of, of, of sexual independence, it exploded on the scene. And it went in a certain direction for 10 or 15 years and then leveled off, and now it's, I see what's going on worldwide in the same light. We clearly have worldwide now. It, it's not just, you know, I talk frequently about the browning of America. And that ultimately, between eight years of the first African and only African-American president we've ever had in the U.S., and the browning of America, it's got, interestingly enough, the most disempowered, the most economically oppressed white men and women in this country supporting a president who's pillaging and plundering. And I don't want to go too far afield. What I'm talking about is we are at a crossroads worldwide where there is a new generation of young women and men, increasingly people of color from throughout the world, who are emerging to take control, to challenge the status quo ante of their governments, of their countries, of the local policies, to rewrite what it is they are accepting and where they want to take it. And it is creating the type of pushback or resistance on the other end, oppression, that is, is, is essentially a life-and-death struggle. And so the fact that you see... Israel openly and proudly assassinating demonstrators in Gaza for nothing more than their voice, their vision and view, and not caring about it and not working, worrying about retaliation. You see that elsewhere. You see it in the Middle East. You see uh, uh, thousands of political prisoners that have disappeared, uh, that are, are, are imprisoned for decades on end or who die within prison in Egypt for nothing more than their voice, for nothing more than their vision and view for their desire to recraft their own life. You see it in Saudi Arabia. You see it in the UAE. You see it in sections of Europe. You see it in sections of Africa. So there is this clear struggle for where we are headed, where this is going. I see a generational move similar to 
the 50s into the 60s. And, you know, it's funny. I had a discussion with someone the other day, a journalist, who went on to describe what they saw was a very, what they saw was a very explosive time in this country right now. It really isn't. Sure, there are tremendous debates on Twitter. There are angry debates on Facebook. But you don't see the kinds of explosive uh, 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 turmoil that you saw in the United States or the rest of the world in terms of resistance that we saw in the 60s, we saw in the 70s. You don't see the battles of the streets. You don't see the same types of strategies and tactics. But I do think we are in a crossroad domestically and internationally where the forces that control uh, the powers of government, the powers of the military, the powers of the police are once again under attack, as they should be, by a new generation of young women and men who wish to define where we're going, who wish to confront a world that is dying because of this environmental nightmare we've created, a world where the separation between the haves and the have-nots is the widest that we've ever seen, a world where the Internet social media platforms, discussions, communications has narrowed the world. It's made it a smaller place, a tighter place, a more self-determined and organized place. So resistance is being seen on a level unseen in American and world history. And that triggers pushback. We have to expect it. There are going to be casualties. I don't look for them. I don't welcome them. None of us do. But it's going to happen. The world is in a period right now with unprecedented... Look, Khashoggi... And people can get into a debate all they want about, well, Khashoggi's uncle was in arms, and Khashoggi at one point was a member of the KSA ruling class. Look, when a guy like Khashoggi, who's got U.S. residency, who's working for the Washington Post, is murdered, is drawn away, murdered, chopped up, incinerated and destroyed, and the whole world knows who did it, and nothing happens, that speaks volumes about what's happening to young women and men in the streets whose only offense is their voice whose only offense is to fight back, and not even with violence necessarily, but just by demonstrating, by, by social media posting, by organizing resistance. So we are in a period, as we must and should be, the kind of fight that is necessity, that, that's a necessity at this point because of the odds. Uh, it was 67 degrees in Antarctica the other day. I mean, you've just had how much of Australia burned to the ground and a billion animals incinerated as a result of climate change and fire. So we are facing this, this sort of conflation of environmental nightmare along with an emerging world of young women and men, increasingly people of color that are posing a threat to the status quo ante, and the systems are not going to roll over and die without the most outrageous pushback, and they're doing it publicly. They're doing it openly. They're doing it throughout the world. You take a look at fascist and neo-fascist governments that are in control. It's not by accident that you've got the leadership of Trump, his administration, our advisors worldwide in movements. It's not by accident that you've got places like Poland and Hungary and Israel and throughout the Middle East that are increasingly openly repressive, Israel obviously for more than 70 or 80 years. It's not by accident that you have growing far-right parties in Europe and in Latin America and Brazil, you've got parties that are anti-immigrant. It's really not about anti-refugee or anti-immigrant. It's about anti-black. It's about anti-brown. It's about anti a, the next generation who are here to claim their position as they're entitled to in the world. So it's going to get ugly. It's going to get uglier. Um, it will level Thank off. You. I am optimistic, though. I, I, 
uh, have been known to be critical of, of some of the uh, movements around. I think that there are cults of personality that are deflecting and diverting where the focus needs to be. Um, but I do not for a second mourn for the loss of, of, of a future because I think we have a really empowered and passionate and active generation of young women and men who understand the torch is passed, it's up to them, and they're going to make damn sure they don't go quietly into the night. Well, speaking of the, you know, existential uh, fight we are in, you know, this is something that Chris Hedges speaks to quite often and um, has pointed out is in, uh, requires, you know, throwing off the systems that are in place now entirely. And, and what you're talking is, you know, you know it revel- that's the very definition of revolution and um, I think there's, you know, for Americans, it's we've never been taught to think in those terms out, you know, anything outside of, you know, a republic um, and that's supposed to be something like a democracy. Uh, you know, the idea of things like direct democracy have never even occurred to us as we have not been exposed to it. And this was something, you know, you point to this being a global, a, a generational um, kind of uh, movement. And, um, you know, it, it, it was through the Gilets Jaunes protest in France that this whole concept began to be introduced. And so it's a, it's a conversation that is starting to happen that, uh, that is something that leaves me feeling somewhat optimistic that, you know, that I, I do see what you're describing in terms of this mobilization. Um, my, you know, but as as Chris Hedges points out, you know, like this is it's an existential struggle, and which means that it's a fight to the death. <laughs> well, well let, let me say this. Let me say this. You know, uh, uh, the the framers, with all of their warts, and they had a lot of warts, but there were some really brilliant men, and not public women, but they were behind the scene at the time. Writers, readers, thinkers, revolutionaries in this country, I'm talking about 300 years ago, 250 years ago. And although it's been, this this saying has been passed along to many different authors, uh, I've not forgotten it since the first time I heard it when I was 16 years old, and the first time I tasted blood in my own mouth from an anti-war demonstration crossing the bridge, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. The tree of liberty must be replenished from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants alike. Um, I'm not suggesting armed struggle. I'm not suggesting that people engage in this, you know, nihilist, um, um, uh, FOCO struggle, which is designed to bring further oppression down in the state. But on the other hand, I think people, and this is one of the debates I've had with young activists these days, people have to learn, it's an old Bob Dylan line, but it's so true, the difference between what you want and what you need. And so while right. increasingly I'm hearing among activists, I find it interesting, that the, the, the brunt of the revolution, quote-unquote, it's funny, the brunt of the revolution in the United States today is at, an election, is, is at a, a voting booth, which is absurd. Let me see if I understand this. What we're going to do is revolutionaries are going to fight not to overthrow the system, but are going to fight to get their position and power within the system and then call for the revolution. Sorry it doesn't work. 
So I think what's, what's, it's, while it's incredible to see young women and men in the United States organizing around issues of political <laughs> campaigns, getting out the vote, be real. Know the difference between what you want and what you need. Um, an interesting parallel, and I'm not being critical here, is I find it interesting that while Sanders is running on a campaign of workers of the, of the United States, workers of the world unite, of reaching out to, in particular, forget about people of color, but at this point, generally white women and men, poor working class communities to serve as the fulcrum for his revolution, chunk of them love Trump. Um, and, and the issue is it comes down to race. It comes down to, again, the fear of the browning of America. In terms of the revolution, we're not going to see a revolution. We've had two revolutions in this, in this country. You had one in the beginning, and you had a very ugly one called the Civil War, in which 300 of which, I don't know, uh, 30 million Americans were injured, crippled, lost their lives. Um, I don't know what chunk of the United States was destroyed. Uh, so those folks who think that this evolving struggle, talking now just about the United States, is going to engage or come down to armed struggle, to revolution, that you know we're going to storm the Bastille, are being very naive. It ain't going to happen. It is a slow but steady struggle and movement. I am a firm believer of, of, of women and men, young ones in particular, organizing on a local level to begin to get involved in local politics, local communities, local self-determination, and to move upward. But this hope, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, we attack Donald Trump for this abuse of discretion of executive power, for what he believes to be this absolute power to the president to declare X, Y, and Z. We attack that as we should. But yet there are those who are waiting for whether it's Sanders, Warren, or Biden to come into office to do the same thing, but to do it for issues we want. It's not about whether you want it or you don't. It's the abuse of executive power. Because today, it's around an issue you like. Tomorrow, with a new president, it's around an issue you don't like. So folks have to keep in mind, it's about, in terms of this country and this struggle, it's about not just balance of power, because that sounds very institutional, but it's about a realistic approach about what we need. And what we need to build in this country here and now, which is being built elsewhere in the world, is a coalition, of, in particular, of young women and men, blacks, Latinos, people of color, the working poor, to begin to identify those areas that can be confronted and challenged successfully. Can it get ugly and bloody? It will at times. It comes with it. Am I suggesting it? No. But I don't believe for a second that the way home here is through electoral politics. It's one part of a broader struggle. And to the degree, keep in mind, people you know, chanted and lit candles and burned incense and cried when Barack Obama ended up being president and there was going to be a revolution in this country and a fundamental change in the criminal justice system and the way we deal with immigrants in peace and all the same things we're hearing right now. Obama ended up being the only president in American history to be at war every day of both terms, even though we've been at war in 90% of our history. Obama declared war abroad in ways through extrajudicial assassination that even George Bush didn't dare. Obama built 
the surveillance state in the United States. Obama buttressed up the criminal justice process in the United States. We saw an explosion until the very end in people of color and poor and political women and men going to prison. So, But it's similar because there, too, we threw all our hopes in terms of core and institutional and fundamental change that is necessary on the shoulders of an electoral system, which is the problem. The notion that we're going to elect the revolutionary to lead the revolution from the <laughs> Oval Office is silly. Well, even if it, 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 looking at it objectively speaking, Harvard published a study in 2015 which ranked the U.S. along with um, over 100 other governments, but 52 or 53 of them considered Western democracies. And not only did it not even make the top 10 or the top half, it ranked dead last uh, well, for electoral. I know. I'm familiar with the study, but you know, um, I got to. So, you know, I'm sorry. Well, my point being, you know, there there are so many reasons, and and I hear a lot of people say, no, but you got to, you can't make a difference, and it's just like even on an objective basis, you know, this is one thing to point to that it, it, just the whole system is completely. Uh, an abject failure. Well, but, so many but levels. you've got to well, keep in mind, <laughs> folks, when I say this, I've, I've, I've made this speech in public, or this, I've used this in public in numerous speaking engagements on TV years ago. Stop and think. In essence, a democracy represents the will of the people. In reality, democracies can represent the absolute tyranny of the people. When you have a system that is based upon 50.5% of people wanting something to happen, you get slavery. You get women denied right. the right to vote. You get opium dens on the West Coast building you know, train systems for the super wealthy of the United States at that time. We're not a democracy. We were never intended to be a democracy. We have a, in theory, democratic system by which elections are held and representatives chosen. But at the end of the day, we're supposed to be a republic. And at its core, a republic is designed to protect minorities and minority viewpoints from the tyranny of the majority. I don't want to live in a place where my folks, quote-unquote, for four years take over because it's 50.5%. Because we end up the next generation with Donald Trump's folks taking over the place of the Electoral College, even though they lost the electoral vote. So the notion of chasing democracy, necessarily people should stop to think, what am I chasing? Now, we have a republic form of government, which to some degree has prevailed in ways that we haven't seen in other parts of the world. It's taken a long time. And again, I'm not extolling the wonderful values of the United States. But the Republican form of government has, over a very long time period of time, evolved in such a way that issues of speech, that issues of association, of issues of discrete and insular minorities, and yes, there have been road bumps. We're talking about genocide of North American Indians. We're talking about slavery, and I can't minimize it. We're talking about Karamatsu, which was the internment of Japanese Americans, not German Americans or Italian Americans, who were equally involved in, 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 with the access overseas. It's been a long and difficult study, but, or chase, but I'm not prepared. I, you know, I had this debate with a journalist the other day. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting how at a time, we're at a crossroads in the United States right now. 
where peoples and communities of color are finally beginning to realize some political power, some economic power, some piece of the proverbial pie. And I find it interesting, at the very time that communities of color are beginning, even under the old ground rules, to break through, and will break through even more importantly with the browning of America, we've got increasing numbers of young white women and men saying to the barracks, rewrite this process, rewrite this system, and start from ground zero. Well, that's great. But the problem is you've got half of this country, or soon to be half of this country, that has spent centuries trying to get a piece of the pie. And I'm not saying the, 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 obtaining the piece of the pie is good, but I find it to be perverse in the extreme that you set ground rules, you put impediments in front of people, you prevent folks from gaining equality, gaining justice, gaining self-determination, gaining a fair, de- a, a, a fair share of the process. And now it's like, nope, we've got to flush it all down the toilet. And yes, there are those who say, well, in the long run, peoples of communi- communities of color are going to benefit from this. Well, I don't need people that don't belong to communities of color deciding what's in the best interest in those communities. <laughs> that was the rule in North America for centuries. It's called European neocolonial projects. So having said that, and I've now just pissed off, you know, another 7 million young white women and men, you're fighting a good fight, but you've got to be real. Learn the difference well, what, between what you want and what you need. Uh, you know, one of the things, before we run out of time, we've got, uh, <clears throat> we're going to get cut off by the music in a few minutes, but I, so I want to give you an opportunity to respond. As I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, there's, you know, this, this discussion of direct democracy that came out of the Gilet Jaune movement. And um, after exploring that, you know, it, it I stumbled across um, the, these other locations, for example, Galicia in um, Spain, northwestern Spain, is an autonomous community with a president. However, it is part of Spain, um, but they they function almost entirely independently. And uh, this this idea of direct democracy is so foreign to us. I mean, it, it's one that I don't pretend to um, feel, you know, I have expertise on, but as I examine it, it seems to me, I, I, I agree with you, it's kind of like, okay, well, you throw it all out, what do you wind up with? And um, you need something workable, but it appears that there are alternatives in place being used um, that are workable, and these ideas of autonomous community struck me as a a new approach to this conundrum of you know you can't fix the system by using the corrupted system itself. And but um, as you point out, I don't want to see bloody revolution myself. And so then the question becomes, you know, what are the options that you can create for yourselves? And it strikes me in. Um, for example, with the attempted uh, U.S.-backed coup attempt in Nicaragua in 2018, some of the things that were done, community organizing, for example, to ensure that the um, everyone could get food because they had to put up blockades to protect homes and communities that were likely to get targeted, and so um, there were these groups that um, organized in order to ensure that, you know, everyone had what they need, again, as you point out. And so 
Um, and, you know, sort of combining those concepts in terms of something relevant to what we are currently um, faced with, it struck me as a, a way to to test out these ideas of, you know, breaking out of that that federal system, you know, whereas a republic, we we have no states' rights anymore. I mean, it's well, been utterly subverted. Well, he, and here's my thought. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it seems to me that, you know, there are nonviolent ways to start, you know, really testing the waters in in ways that might, that are legitimate infrastructures that can function to serve us through a period where, of, um, you know, if you're talking about revolution, there's going to be tremendous upheaval. So, um, you know, having anything that's in place and functioning and people are comfortable with is really important. Look, I have no problem conceptually with, with people need to define, carve out what it is they want to make in their lives and communities. The fact of the matter is the problem with the notion of direct democracy, of localized community intent on where folks are going, is there are communities that are going to say, okay, we want to be white, we want to be Italian, we want to be Christian, we want to be evangelical, we want to be straight. What do you do? The fact of the matter is, this notion of, of small communities determining their geography, their priorities, their values, their, their, their speech, their association, necessarily brings along with it the baggage of oppression. And yes, there are Canton systems, and for example, and this is, I think, a chance where we're going to go with the one-state solution, which I'm a proponent of and I've been for years in Palestine. There are the Canton systems of Switzerland, where there are unique, identifiable communities that are ultimately answerable to a central government. They have their own regional governments, which is actually what China was about during the revolution. Um, I have to disagree with you with one thing. I mean, I think by and large, and I think there's some tension going on, by and large through a process of evolution, the notion of federalism has been successful in the United States. Uh, we have state constitutions which empower the citizens of the given state to go higher than the federal constitution. The federal constitution is the basement. States are free to give more powers, not less. Um, we have states that where they begin to um, undercut, attack, violate fundamental core freedoms on a, in terms of the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution. They get smacked down. But when you talk about this notion of self-determination or community control, that is the essence of what federalism is about with all of its warts. But I have seen, and let me give you an example, the North Caucasus region, which is a series in Russia of smaller communities uh, that in theory are supposed to be somewhat self-determined, that have their own ability to dictate their leadership and policy. It's all great until the, until the central Russian government says no, and that's the end of it. And if the local community tries to say yes, the FSB um, um, comes rolling in and heads fly. But you know, smaller countries that have never tasted before uh, the ability to decide who and what and where they want to go and how, those are revolutionary and revolutionary periods that have to move and will. But I'm always leery of this notion of, of communities within a broader picture that can empower themselves or set the agenda for themselves, we lived through that. It was called genocide of Indians. It was called slavery. It was called Jim Crow. It was called redlining. It was called attacks on the LGBTQ community. It was called, it's still 40 years and we don't have an equal rights amendment yet in place. 
So be careful for what we ask for, folks. Um, there are very difficult issues that we're confronting, but we are also 330 million people in this process as opposed to where these smaller democratic, quote-unquote, experiences that are, are popping up where there may be 1 million, 2 million, 4 million, 5 million people, where there's also not the diversity that is one of the, 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 the compelling and re redeeming features of the United States. My concern is to maintain the freedom of diverse groups. My concern is to maintain the power of minorities, my, my, or to protect it, or to allow it to evolve as it wishes they wish to go. My concern is to protect the voice of dissent in minority communities and minority political viewpoints in this country. That's my priority. That's my concern. Because my view is, in a, it, when, when you get a homogeneous community, you get a homogeneous agenda. Diversity is ultimately the check and safeguard on our power, and that's why I have a lot of hope in terms of the United States with all of our warts. Once we flush the toilet of where we're at right now, because the browning of America will bring us greatness. Thank you so much, Stanley Cohen. Have a great afternoon, everyone.